following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. Fourth Corinthians are taken off. If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis this morning, and then we're going to kind of go all over the place for the Advent season. Um, every week, we're going to be in a different Old Testament passage of Scripture, uh, talking about what is to come. Some people say that we should uh, go away from the Old Testament. We say uh, no way. The Old Testament is so important to understanding the New. So um, this Christmas, we're kind of uh, attaching ourselves to that. Um, I don't know about you or how you were raised, but uh, we didn't do Advent when I was growing up, and I'm a pastor's kid, uh, and then we kind of found out about it and some of um, the traditions in a, in a real kind of interesting way and realized just how uh, much it has helped uh, to really kind of illuminate uh, the Christmas season and making sure that we're drawing the proper attention uh, to Jesus that he deserves. There was a man who was at a Little League game, and uh, he paused, and he was at, uh, got there a little bit late, and he looks at one of the kids in the dugout, and he says, hey, bud, what's the score? He said, oh, it's 15 to nothing, bro. He's like, 15 to nothing? Are you discouraged? And he says, no, man, we haven't gotten up to bat yet. That's hope. When we talk about hope, that's exactly what hope is. Hope is the expectation of what God has promised, specifically for us as believers, it is the power of his strength, and it is his faithfulness to us. When we talk about hope, we're talking about the fact that God says we might be down a few runs, but don't worry, we're going to bat soon. In Genesis, you might wonder why we're starting at Genesis, specifically chapter 3. We're going to look at uh, the first 15 uh, verses here. Genesis is translated origin. And it is a book that essentially sets the uh, redemptive biblical storyline. So if you were to look at the Bible, you would see that Genesis is the start, Revelation is the end, and it bookends. And we see here in Genesis that God creates. He creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He creates all the seas and the animals and all of the things that we have entrusted to our care. And then he creates man and he creates woman and he creates them in his image. And man is appointed in Genesis to participate in God's divine rule over the universe. Isn't that amazing? That God says, hey, you can help me in uh, reigning in this universe that I have created. And so man is given what we call free will. He's able to choose. He can either do what God wants him to do and experience God's blessings, or he can define good and evil for himself, and he can do the exact opposite, bringing upon destruction upon himself. And if you've ever read Genesis, you realize that man uh, chooses to not honor God. He chooses his own destruction by disobeying God. Now, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you're going to see that repeated theme of rebellion, going against what God has commanded, and then God helping his people by giving them a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance. And he constantly says, I will redeem you even though you have sinned against me. It goes from the garden to uh, Cain and Abel, the first murder, to the flood. 
to Babylon. And it continues. And God essentially says over and over again to humanity, I love you and let me help you. But for some reason, we reject God. And so God says, hey, last ditch effort. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a wounded victor, a Messiah. I'm going to give you one individual that's going to defeat evil. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the hope for humanity that has come first advent. Advent means coming. And then he is going to come again. That is the second advent. So we go into Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, uh, let's pick it up at verse 1 and we'll see what happened. This uh, first verse is why my wife says that uh, snakes are of the devil because the serpent is cursed, okay? So that's a whole other sermon for another day, how you feel about snakes. Uh, we're not going to talk about that. But it says the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he comes up and he says to the woman, I remember when I first read this to my kids, my littlest said, Dad, snakes can talk. I said, well, yeah, but then they got cursed, and now they can't talk anymore. They just hiss. Did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any other tree in the garden? The woman speaks back to the serpent, and he says, well, actually, God said we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, here's God's command to Adam. He's going to give him the garden. He's going to give him all the things that he needs. He's going to provide for all of his uh, provisions, and he says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And no doubt it was probably the prettiest tree that was there. And you shall not touch it, lest you will die. Now Eve doesn't know what it means to die, but God does. And the serpent says to the woman, whoa, hold on a second, you won't die? He speaks to her inadequacies. He speaks to the fact that she doesn't know things. For God knows, the serpent speaking in verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God. You will know good and evil. There's them choosing for themselves instead of relying on the dependency of God. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. She stares at it. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise. And so she sins by first touching it because she takes the fruit. And then her second sin is that she eats the fruit. And Adam is standing right next to her. Oftentimes, we think that Adam is far away, but he's right next to her. And a woman without clothes is offering him food, and so he eats. And then the eyes of both of them are opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they make the first clothing. They sew fig leaves together, and they made for themselves Loincloths, and then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden because they were ashamed. And the Lord God calls out, now notice here, this is so important for us as we study what it means for Jesus to come to us. Because religion will say that man is searching after God, but being a believer in Jesus Christ, we realize that God searches for us when we are lost. Look at this. He comes up to him and he says, where are you? Verse 10. Where are you? Uh, I heard the sound of you. This is Adam speaking in the garden. And I was afraid. Why were you afraid? Who told you to be afraid? What is fear? You're not supposed to know what fear is. I was afraid and I'm naked, and so I hid myself. He's ashamed. 11. 
God says back to the man and the woman, who told you you were naked? He says, have you eaten of that tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now here's what's amazing about God. He often asks us questions that we already know. So that we'll be the ones to say that we sinned and fallen short of his glory. And <laughs> this is typical man right here in verse 12, right? Well, the woman, she didn't have any clothes on and she gave me food, so I ate it. It's her fault. All the men in this room are like, yeah, it makes sense. I agree. Amen. First amen I've ever said in church, but preach. She gave me the fruit of the tree. I ate it. And the Lord God said, okay, let's talk to you. So he looks at the woman and he says, did you eat it? Is that what you have done? The woman looks back and he says, no, the serpent did it. It was a snake. He slithered and he came up to me and he said to eat it. And neither one of them owned their disobedience. Neither one of them talk about the fact that they're dis being disobedient. And so the Lord God leaves man and woman for just a moment. And what does he do? He speaks to the serpent. Notice this? He talks to the serpent. The first person that God is going to curse is the serpent. But notice in the rest of the passage, if you've ever read this passage, he never curses man. He always starts with Satan, curses him, and he's going to restore man. Because you have done this, he says, curse are you above all the livestock, curse of the beasts of the field. On your belly, this is why Bethany believes that snakes don't have feet. She's not here right now, so you can take that up with her later. I was just kidding about that. Please don't. I don't need that in Christmas time. Your husband said, stop, stop, stop. And the dust you shall eat in all the days of your life. Now, here's our key passage for this morning. I'll put amenity between you and the woman. Remember, he's speaking to the serpent here. I'll put amenity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the word of the Lord. We're gonna focus on verse 15. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your truth and the fact that it is truth and that the promise that was spoken from the beginning in the garden is still true today. We thank you for the fact that you give us clarity on how you want us to live and that you give us hope that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation and that it runs all the way through our lives and then when you come back again, it gives us hope to carry on so that we know you win and we have the opportunity to win with you. God, speak clearly through me today. Help us to understand things in ways that we didn't understand them before and apply them accordingly. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for this pulpit and thank you for this church and thank you for these people and thank you for this season and thank you for the opportunity to preach your truth. Help me get it right for your glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so what is hope? What is hope? That's our whole goal today. What is hope? Hope, number one, first of all, in order to have hope, you have to have full surrender. The first good news in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is called the Proto-Evangelum. Say that, Proto-Evangelum. Took me three days to get that, okay? So just good for you. You got it on the first shot. It's the first promise to fallen man. It has the basic elements in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The basic elements of being a believer in Jesus Christ are this. Number one, that there is a curse because of sin. Sin is missing the mark that God has set for our life. It is a standard which he has set, and we all missed it. Number two, God, even though we are sinners, provides for us via a Savior, Old Testament looking to the Savior that would come, New Testament looking to the Savior who came. 
Many religions will tell of how man searches for God, but God says salvation is God's search for man who ran away from him. And so when we get here in the text, we realize that even though man hides, God has to deal correctly with him. So go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Circle that word, anemone. Took me a while to get that one right, too. Anemone is hostility or animosity or hatred. Okay? It is a blood feud, and here we realize that anemone starts with uh, Adam and Eve being at war and a blood feud against the devil. In the Old Testament law, it's used a couple of times. For example, if you were to commit manslaughter back in Numbers, okay, let's say that you got in an argument with somebody and you chose to take that person's life. You pop into court and the judge would look at you and they, he would say, was there amenity for the, the crime that was committed? In other words, did you have hate in your heart against that person? Was there animosity? Did something drive you that wasn't right? And if there was, you were sentenced to death. But if there was no amenity, you were essentially uh, able to go free. They would take you to another town and, and you would seek refuge there. In, in Ezekiel, it's not just an individual. Amenity is a corporate thing, okay? So, for example, uh, you don't have to go here, but Ezekiel chapter 24, for example, the Lord God said, because the Philistines, who were the enemies of the Israelites, acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending amenity, I will stretch out my hand against them. So God is at war with the devil too as well. But we as believers aren't to have this amenity, this hatred, this blood feud in regards because God is the ultimate judge. Paul says in Galatians chapter five that amenity is one of the fruits of the flesh. We let that go, give it over to God freely. Let him be the judge when people are against us. But people who have chosen to be uh, against God, to continue to reject God, to continue to rebel against him are people who still welcome rebellion, have hostility within them, and are people without hope. And so the first thing that we have to understand is you need to choose whom you will serve. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can eliminate animosity and hatred by giving over to the ultimate judge who is God, who has given us his son, Jesus. But to say, I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior is to say, I welcome animosity and I'm a friend of the devil. You cannot serve two masters here. You cannot serve two masters. You have to surrender to one side. So it says, you will have amenity between Satan and women's offspring. So God cursed Satan, he says you here in the text, and he says you will forever be at war with mankind, those who are redeemed via Christ's blood through faith. Her offspring are harassed by the devil and his demons. This is Satan's world. I don't know if you know that or not. Even though God created it, God essentially says that Satan is going to have rule over it for a time being until he comes and restores and brings everything new. World is a system or a structure where Satan uses unsaved individuals to accomplish his will, his will. He uses unsaved men and women to accomplish his will and his purposes. That's what we're struggling with here today in our society. 
James validates this point. James chapter four, verse four. Don't you know friendship with the world is amenity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You cannot serve two masters. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are at amenity with God. You are in a blood feud against him. You are rebelling against him. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then 1 John would say, don't love this world or the things in this world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus says in John 15, if the world hated you, keep in mind that he hated me first. So war ceases when we surrender. Christ comes, and we're reminded of this in this Advent season, to make ultimate peace with God. He is our hope. And so the question on the table is, are you in love with this world? Because if you are, then you might be at amenity with God because you're a friend of the world. But if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you know him personally, then we realize we have peace with God and we have the ability to realize that this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. This Christmas season, because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, we see things with eternal eyes and understand that this is just a breath. And our hope is in the full surrender of God through salvation in Christ. Now, there's a little bit of a tricky passage here. Uh, it says in verse 15, I'll put amenity between you and the woman. You're going to harass her, and I'm going to protect her, Right? The offspring. But then it says, which kind of gets me a little bit, it says your offspring. Wait, Satan's got kids? If Satan has kids, I'm worried, right? Like that makes me a little bit uncomfortable here in the text. There's nothing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to indicate that the sin in the garden involved any sort of sexual relationship between Eve and the serpent. Some people believe that. In biblical context, we see the Bible as an onion. Verses go to chapter, chapter go to, bo uh, to book, book goes to genre. There's genres like um, Old Testament law, for example, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, the story of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? Goes to genre. Genre goes to Testament. Testament goes to Bible. Okay? That's how we understand the Word of God. That's how we unpack it. And if we were to unpack it, we would say, given that biblical context, one can see this passage highlights humanity's tendency towards sin and disobedience to God, not sexual relationship with a serpent or the rise of a demonic line. What he's saying here is those who are enemies of God in love with the world are in essence Satan's offspring. Can you imagine dying and seeing Jesus face to face? And he says, listen, you are the offspring of the devil because you rejected salvation through Christ. Can't even imagine that. He says, anybody who identifies with Satan, his demons, his fallen angels, are his offspring. Just as anybody who identifies with me, Jesus, are his children. So sin enters the human race at this point, and it continues to trickle down from generation to generation. We inherit sin from Adam, and we struggle with evil but we can overcome evil when we're fully surrendered to God through a relationship with Christ. We understand that we're at a war with God, with others, with ourselves sometimes, but that war can be won in surrender. So the Christmas season reminds us to surrender to Christ. And surrender produces joy and peace and hope. 
because Jesus came and he'll come again. That's the first part of this passage of scripture. You need to not just know that, but you need to do something with that knowledge. The American Christian church needs to repent of ethically, morally goodness and go to the grace of God. It's so important for us. Because many of us know that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, but we have not accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and claimed in full surrender that he has full control of our everyday life. Okay? If we fully surrender to God, the second part of the verse is awesome because that produces in us godly confidence. Hope is, first of all, full surrender, and secondly, the obtainment of godly confidence. Look what it says here. The woman, not the man, is emphasized because she was the one who was enticed by the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 says she is the mother of all living things. And just as she fell, watch how God works. He is going to restore her by bringing a savior from her. Isn't that amazing? He says, listen, I will use woman so a savior, Galatians 4, 4, can come into the world. Just as she was deceived, she is the one also who will be an instrument of God to bring relief to the world. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I often wonder, why does Jesus come to us the way that he does? Mary is a normal human being, right? And yet, God the Father is the Father. If we were to have just God, like let's just say God just came down, and he walked among us, and he talked among us, uh, we would be petrified and terrified. Because he is too above us. And let's just say God came to us just as a human being. So Mary and Joseph had kids, and hey, this is the Messiah, the one who will take away the sins of the world. Well, first of all, it can't happen because sin goes from generation to generation to generation. But secondly, we would relate to him too much. You'd be like, he's just like us. So having Jesus, 100% God, but at the same time 100% man, we have the ability to honor and adore a holy God, but also understand him on a level like ours. It gives us confidence that he, Jesus, the Messiah, who will crush or be crushed after being bruised. Now, this is written a little differently in the text. Look at this. It should say, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head, but it's flipped. So we're gonna preach it the way that it's written. He will bruise your head, essentially, is the Hebrew for shumph. Say it. Shumph. You know what that reminds me of? Remember the Batman comic way back in the day? Shumph. Pow. Boom. Big old bubbles. That's exactly what it means here. Shumph. Shumph. Uh, I've noticed having girls, they don't use sound effects, but boys do, right? So whenever I get the chance to hang out with the boys, I love it. Because they're like, I was like, hey, what'd you do today? Well, first we're in a car. And then I'll say, oh, we got an accident. Right, that just cracks me up. Girls are like, well, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. He will bruise your head is speaking of the Messiah coming from the woman foretold to wound or crush Satan's head. Now, Satan's head is meaning influence. Again, he is the one who influences the world. The world is a system or structure set up by Satan where he uses unsaved individuals to accomplish his world. He is in a position of influence. And Jesus is going to bruise, or he will bruise your head means that he will take away Satan's influence. How? Number one, he will live a perfectly sinless life and die a perfect death. 
Satan will actually come to Jesus. He'll tempt him in the, in the garden and he'll, he'll use scripture and he'll twist it uh, to form what he wants to form. And all of a sudden, Jesus will spit back to him over and over again. He'll say, hey, listen, this doesn't work this way. Your influence doesn't have any effect on me. So the first thing is that he uh, will bruise the head of Satan by, first of all, taking away his influence and giving that over to his children. That's the first advent. And then, number two, he will return to earth to free the redeemed from Satan's world, his kingdom of evil. After the millennium, we realize in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, you don't have to go there, let me read this to you. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I'll never forget reading that to my oldest daughter. She said, Dad, that means we win. I said, yeah, we totally win. She goes, why don't we win now? I said, I don't know. But soon, it will happen. So we celebrate at Christmas time the first advent with kingdom eyes looking forward to the second advent. That gives us our confidence. That gives us confidence to know that Christ came and is coming again. He will bruise your head. He will crush the devil. But first, you will bruise his heel. That's bad news. The bruising of the heel is the seed of the woman which speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. What Satan will do temporarily, Christ will do eternally. Now, I don't know how you feel about snakes. I love them. I just think they're cool. And you might look at me and be like, Jordan, we're, we're questioning your Christianity right now. Okay, whatever. There's no snakes in heaven, so just it is what it is. But I think, I, here's what I know about snakes. If you have a venomous snake, right, and it bites you, what happens is that venom goes into your body and eventually, slowly and surely, you die. That is a great illustration for what happens in the life of people who don't know Jesus. You're just slowly being uh, drawn in to sin. And, and you're slowly just kind of melting away. But then there's this thing called anavenom, which is pretty awesome. And what they do is they take uh, the, the, the snake and they put it like on a cup and then they just sound effect <laughs> and then and then you see the venom like drip in this cup and then they take the venom and they're like hey anybody who has snake bite we're going to take this and we're going to give them just a little bit of the good stuff so it gets rid of the bad stuff and it's and, and it, it is a healing so what essentially happens there is what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for our good. So even though he's going to bruise his heel momentarily, we won't die from the venom that has been poisoned in our soul because Romans 16, 20, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, but it will produce in you hope if you have a relationship with Christ. It will give you strength. Because of Christ, you'll have hope not worldly hope, biblical hope, which is laid through faith. In the English, that word hope carries doubt, right? Have you ever heard somebody say that? I just hope for tomorrow. I hope I get it right. I heard my kids say that when it comes to spelling tests. I said, but you don't know this word. We're just going to hope we get it right. And I'm like, that's garbage. You can't walk out with that. We need you to walk out with confidence, knowing for sure. You ever hear people say, I, I hope so. That's worldly, but that's not biblical. 
In the Bible, Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities to give you confident hope. Because of Christ, your hope is securely assured. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, what we hope for and certain of, we don't see. There's no doubts in biblical hope. There's no doubt in it. Biblical hope is confident expectation and assurance based off a sure foundation of joy and full confidence. Let me put this into words that you can understand. Biblical hope is the reality of knowing things. What things? Biblical hope is knowing that when you students are bullied at school, that God one day will be the judge. And that he will right the wrongs that you suffered. Biblical hope is that when you are unsure about the future, college students, that God will provide clarity and answers the more that you spend time in his word. Biblical hope is when you who are single have been praying over and over again for a spouse, that on dates God would give you wisdom and discernment to know that what you are doing is according to his word and help you stay pure. Biblical hope is when you who are married have problems and you think about leaving your spouse and you think to yourself, it's over. Biblical hope says that I seek the other person's best because that's what Christ did for me on the cross. And maybe, just maybe, God will be honored and glorified and we can turn around a bad situation. Biblical hope is trying repeatedly to have kids only knowing for sure that God will fill the void of hurt when miscarriages come. I have a friend of mine, he has had five miscarriages. Five! And I talked to him, I said, what is, what, what do you do with that? And he says, we hope in the confidence of faith that we have with Jesus Christ. You can't get that in the world. Biblical hope is when the job fails or layoffs come. And you go home and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is going to fill your basic needs. Biblical hope is that when you lay awake at night and you start thinking all those crazy thoughts and you get worried about all the things that are transpiring in the world, that God's going to give you sleep, that he's going to give you rest. Biblical hope is the assurance that things will be okay. Biblical hope gives us the assurance that when the doctors diagnose the cancer or the sickness or the disease, that God will provide peace regardless of what care is on the table for you. Biblical hope is that when death comes knocking at our door, we go from this life bound by the chains of this world into the arms of our Savior. That's hope confidence, but it can't come unless there is surrender. Biblical hope is not a feeling. It carries no doubt. It is a sure foundation upon which we base all of our life because God has never, not once kept his promises. That's hope. Biblical hope is our faith and confident assurance founded on the rock of our salvation. That's Jesus. And it was promised here in the garden. It starts here. It starts right here in Genesis that God says, I will give you hope. But you cannot have that hope unless you accept the free gift of eternal life. The protoevangelium is God's plan of salvation from the beginning. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it is the reason that God appeared to destroy the devil's work. 
Christmas is not Christmas without that message. It doesn't work. This Christmas, we are assured of Christ when we accept him in spite of all the negativity, all the criticism, all the horrible headlines that you see. It is the hope that Jesus is alive, that he is able to conquer, that he imparts confidence, that he forgives sin to those who trust in him. In Ephesians, you don't have to go there. Ephesians chapter 5. I love what it says here in verse 18. It says, look carefully then at how you walk. This is verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil, because the world is evil, because Satan has control of it just for a moment, and then Jesus is going to come. He's going to take care of everything. 17, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What's God's will? What should I do? Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit in full surrender, having godly confidence says here that you should submit out of the reverence for Christ back to chapter 1 verse 18 having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the working of his great might That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above the rule and authority and the power and the dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things. And that is the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Biblical hope is full surrender, godly confidence. Have you done that? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth and for the fact that the Bible speaks very specifically that we can have hope when we are fully surrendered to you in a relationship of faith. That we confess that we're sinners and believe that you are the Savior, the one who came, Emmanuel Jesus, who walked among us, talked among us, died for us, and rose again, seated at the right hand of God, coming again soon. May God, as we walk through all of the trials and the tribulations, excuse me, of life, know with full confidence of the hope that has come gives us hope for the now and anticipation for the future. For those of you who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, make today the day in which you come to a relationship with God through faith in Christ who came. And for those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, May you be encouraged, whatever you're facing, wherever you're at in life, whatever you're going through, that the God of hope never leaves you or forsakes you, that he walks with you, that he is behind you, that he is beside you, that he has already gone before you. As Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And that as the New Testament declares, God is working for the good of those who love him. Good might be trials and tribulations. Good might be seasons where things are going okay. Regardless, as Paul said, whatever situation I find myself in, I consider it pure joy because of the hope I have in Jesus Christ, my rock and my salvation. 
God, make that our prayer as we go through this month, this week, as we carry into the next year to put our confident assurance in the hope of Jesus Christ who we fully surrender to in faith. It is in your name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.